So what we need is everybody listening to the sound of my voice to proudly declare yourself as indistractable. You're the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with others. You're the kind of person that does some weird things, right? Just as uh, somebody who wears unusual religious garb or someone who has unusual diet. Yeah, I do some things that are different. You know what? When I go out to lunch to, with people, I put my phone away and I'd like them to do the same so I can have a conversation and be fully present with them. You know what? I plan my time. Yeah, it sounds a little strange, but that's part of my practice. Is it any different from someone who prays uh, up to uh, in a particular faith? No, it's who you are. It's it's part of your identity. So we can use those identities to help us become the kind of people we want to become. That's Nir Eyal, the behavioral designer responsible for best-selling books like Hooked and Indistractable, as well as the wonderful podcast called Near and Far. As our guest on this episode, one of the things that we talked about was how we're all a little different. And if we're going to be a little different, why not choose the things that we're going to be a little different about? Or is it with, as in different with? Oh. Or is it different <laughs> from? Or, or could it be different for, Tim? Come on, what different how? How, how are we different? I, I'm just not sure. I guess I'm just being me, which is just a little different. <laughs> and so you are, Tim. Yes, you are different. So, Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Now, let's get back to Nir and his idea of being a little different. Yes, and one of the things that makes Nir different is his ability to come up with smart ways of addressing some complex things like shamers, blamers, and claimers, or traction, action, distraction. Now, these are clever little phrases, but they're based on really solid behavioral science, the same way that his books are well-researched and well-written. Yeah, and we're going to groove on a couple of these clever ideas after the interview, so stick around. With Nir, we'll also talk about the perils of self-comparison and the antidote to impulsiveness, something you won't want to miss, Mr. Impulsive Tim Hulian. <laughs> and we are no. excited to talk about with him about ethics and the implications that come at a personal, corporate, and societal levels of that. And for regular listeners, you'll recognize ethics as something we love to discuss, and we think you're really going to enjoy this conversation about those ethics with Nier. Yeah. Now, before we go any further, I'd just like to ask a favor. Now, if you're already a fan of Nier's books like Indistractable and Hooked, and you enjoy our conversation with him, please give us just a quick rating or a short review. Or, okay, if you're being introduced to Nier for the first time and you end up enjoying our conversation with him, please just drop us a quick rating or leave us a brief review. It sounds, Tim, like you're asking for the same thing from both groups, but... <laughs> well... I'm just saying that everybody's a little different, and I just want everybody to feel like they fit in. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. All right. With that, Groovers, we encourage you to sit back with a nice tall glass of indestructible brew and enjoy our conversation with Nir Eyal. Nir Eyal. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks so much, Tim. It's great to be here. We're happy to have you here. It's uh, really a pleasure to be talking to you all the way across the globe in Singapore. And we'd like to start with a quick speed round. Kurt, do you want to get started? Sure. So Nir 
Would you prefer to have coffee or tea? Both. And here in both. Singapore, both. We And here in Singapore, we have both at the same time. We call it a yin-yang. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, part of what I, uh, I write about, I study is variable rewards. So I don't like to lock myself into any one type of, of, of treat. I like, uh, coffee. I like tea. I like every kind of drink you can imagine. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Total novelty seeking, huh? Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Out of all of the people that we've asked that question, which has been 95% of the people that have been on the show, we've never had anybody say that it's at the same time. We've had people say both, but, you know, coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon, or whatever fits my fancy, but never at the same time. So this is good. This is I'm an this outlier. Is I love it. I'll take You're it. You're a first on, on behavioral <laughs> group. There you go. You're definitely an outlier. So uh, second question, could you name a couple of historical figures that you'd like to have dinner with, with the only requirement being that they're not alive today? Ah, uh, let's see. Wow, this is a this is a great question. So I'll start close to home uh, with my my grandfather. My grandfather was a Holocaust mm -hmm. survivor who lost two of his children and his wife in the Holocaust, and then after oh. the Holocaust, married one of the only remaining Jewish women in his village, uh, which was my grandmother, and uh, they had one child, my father, and uh, he died when I was three years old, and so I never really had oh. got to know him. So that would that would be mm. top of my list. But then historical yeah. figures uh, that uh, uh, maybe other folks might know. I think Kurt Lewin would be very interesting. Oh, yes. uh, the, I think he would be a great person to to sit down with. Of course, I have to mention Albert Einstein would be amazing. And uh, yeah, so I think those those folks would probably be top of my list. Oh, Fantastic. Wow. You you have just made, look, you, you've, you've had a yin-yang answer here. And Kurt Lewin, who happens to be one of my most favorite researchers <laughs> of all time. So you've just risen above the already high pedestal that you've been on. Okay. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Well, okay, so you've set me up here uh, because uh -huh. that's kind of how I introduced. That's kind and of how I just I may not listen to your answer. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is perfect. This is perfect because I actually the inspiration to write my second book, Indistractable, came from this very question. It was in a book that uh, my daughter and I were reading and had all these activities that dads and daughters could do together. And this was like a question that you asked to each other to kind of you know bond a little bit and get to know each other better and just have you know some funny, uh, fun questions to discuss. And I remember when she asked me this question, I remember the question verbatim, but I don't remember her answer because in that moment, I started to look at my phone and I just had to check this one quick thing on my device. And by the time I looked up, she was gone and she'd left the room because I was sending a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And that's when I had to reassess my own relationship with distraction. And that became the inspiration for writing Indistractable. Uh, and if you ask me now, what's the superpower I would most want? It's the power to be indistractable, the power to just follow through on what it is I say I'm going to do with my time and attention. I, I think this is the skill of the century. I'm sorry, did Nir, did you have an answer? I, I, <laughs> I, I was looking at my phone here. So, uh, of course. <laughs> nice. Of course. Okay, a last speed around question. To become less distracted, should we just start by using big, long to-do lists to keep us on task? Okay, so to-do lists are probably one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Or let me be more specific. It's that running your life on a to-do list is probably one of the worst things you can do for productivity. Uh, and there's all kinds of problems with to-do lists. So a much better approach is to use what we call a time box calendar. There's nothing wrong with taking things out of your brain and putting them on a piece of paper or in an app, 
But if you just leave them there without scheduling that time, that is a recipe for disaster. It, it changes your self-image. It, uh, it leaves you with constant guilt and stress so that even when you have leisure time, you're constantly thinking about your to-do list. And the worst thing about to-do list is that there's no constraint. You can always add more as opposed to when you use a time box calendar, there is that built-in constraint. And so it forces you to make some trade-offs based on your values. So uh, a time box calendar used in, in conjunction is a much better approach. Tell us how you would use a time box calendar. It is a fantastic concept. Yeah, and I'm not the first one to develop it, of course. It's been around for a very long time. It's probably the most well-studied productivity technique out there. It's It comes from what psychologists call making an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And so what, what I added to the conversation is, one, how do we come up with how do we spend our time? And we do that by asking ourselves, what are our values? What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. And so I give readers these three life domains. You, you're at the center of these three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others, you can't make a contribution to your community and the world. So you've got to take care of yourself first. And that means time for doing whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. Now, it's not up to me or anyone else to tell you how to spend your time. If you want to spend your time playing video games, do it, <laughs> right? It's not <laughs> up to me to tell you that that's a, a bad thing. And we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing how people spend their leisure time, right? Why is playing a video game any different from watching football on TV? There's no difference. So let people do what they want. What I wanna help people do is to do the things that they themselves say is important. So if spending time with your family is important, if uh, working out, if reading, if uh, meditating, prayer, or video games is important, great. Put it on your calendar according to your values. So you've got you at the center, you've got your relationships, and then finally, the work domain. And so this is where it gets really interesting because what we find is that low performers tend to spend their entire day doing what's called reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings, all day long reacting to things. High performers make some part of their day, they keep that time and they keep it sacred for what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work you can only do without distraction. Planning, strategizing, creative work, thinking, for God's sakes, requires us to do so without distraction. So if you're not making at least some part in your day reserved for reflective work, the kind of work you can only do without distraction, I promise you, you're running real fast in the wrong direction. So we build this time box calendar. You don't have to do every day of your entire week. Start out with, you know, how would you spend the ideal afternoon? Okay, maybe even a weekend afternoon. How would you spend an afternoon according to your values? And I want you to schedule time for social media or video games or whatever it is that you like to do with your time. Put that time in your calendar. What you will find is that you can enjoy that time without the stress of thinking that you should constantly be doing something else. And, and this brings me to a really important point that the opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Of course it is. We have traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. So if you don't define what is traction in your day, you can't say you got distracted, right? If your calendar is full of blank <laughs> white space, everything is a distraction, right? You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. 
So you've got to define what is traction. Conversely, anything can be distraction if it's not what you plan to do. So one of the most common problems I see, it's a problem that I used to have, I used to get to work, sit down at my desk and say, okay, now I'm gonna focus on that big project that I've been delaying, the thing that I've been procrastinating. I'm gonna do it, here I go, nothing's gonna get in my way, I'm gonna get started right now, but first let me check some email, <laughs> right? Let me tick off a few- That never happens. Right, that never, never right? Happens. <laughs> let, let, let me tick off a few easy things to do on my to-do list just to get going, just to get started. And what I realized doing this five years of research is that that is actually the most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's a work-related task, it's still a distraction if it's not what you plan to do. It's the worst kind of distraction because you don't even realize and recognize that you're getting distracted. That is just yeah. a, a really good way of framing all of these things. So you actually wrote in a recent Psychology Today article, you know, how to tame a wandering mind. You offer three wonderful tips, kind of tying back into this distraction piece about un unconventional tips to overcome the evil killer of productivity. Wondering if you might be able to share what those three were and then talk a little bit about them. If we didn't just put you on the spot here to make, <laughs> <laughs> make it go, when did I wrote that like three years ago and they finally just published it. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this framework that we just talked about because I think it fits well with, with what you're referencing. So if you can picture in your mind, I know it's a podcast, so I need you to do some visualizing here. If you can think of a horizontal number line, right, with two arrows pointing to the right and left, to the right is traction, to the left is distraction, okay? Now think of two arrows bisecting in the center, right, pointing to the middle of that horizontal line vertically. So you've got at the top arrow pointing to the middle and the bottom arrow pointing to the middle. One of those arrows represents external triggers. External triggers are things in our outside environment that prompt us towards traction or distraction. So the arrow comes up and goes either to either side, traction or distraction. Those are external triggers. External triggers are what we tend to blame when we get distracted, mm. right? It was my phone, it was my boss, it was my kids. It's all this stuff outside of us, the external triggers that prompts us to traction or distraction. But did you know studies find that when we survey people and ask them why they check their phones, only 10% of the time that we check our phone, is it because of an external trigger? 10%. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted, we get distracted because of what's called an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, these uncomfortable sensations that prompt us towards traction or distraction. So what we find is that people who know how to master these internal triggers, they can actually use that discomfort to propel them forward like rocket fuel towards traction. And those who continue to get distracted whenever they feel bad, whenever they feel discomfort, oh, this is difficult, uh, this is boring, I'm not inspired right now, I don't feel like doing this, what do they do? They get distracted. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you're always going to find a distraction somewhere if you don't understand the root cause of that distraction. The root cause of distraction, the reason we get distracted, it's not a moral failing, it's not a character flaw, it's not that there's a 97% chance you do not have ADHD, only about 3% of the population has ADHD, so for the vast majority of us, it's not that you have ADHD, okay? It's just that we haven't learned how to deal with discomfort in a healthier manner. 
So the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering those internal triggers. And there's all kinds of techniques we can use. There's dozens that I describe in the book, but that is the most important step. You know, everybody wants, tell me what the magic bullet is. Well, you know, what, what, what's, the, uh, what's the app I need? What's the, what's the killer technique that I use? There is no magic bullet because it starts in our own heads, right? That we want to blame the technology, but that's just the proximal cause. The root cause of the problem is that we don't learn how to master these internal triggers. And if we don't, they become our masters. Why is it so much easier for us to look outside of ourselves rather than inside of ourselves? So the brain is a cognitive miser, right? We like easy answers. And whenever that easy answer is blame something outside of ourselves, that tends to be what we'll do. We've seen throughout history what happens when people blame uh, their problems for the other, right? For the ethnic group that might be causing their, that's the source of all their problems. Or, you know, it goes back all the, all the way back to um, uh, tappening, this practice that we know when we find mummified skulls that many times they have a hole in the head. Because what people used to do whenever there was any kind of disease, they would actually puncture the hole, the, the cranium, in order to allow the evil spirit to exit, that it must be some kind of problem that needs excising. And so this, this searching for easy answers is often wrong, especially when the correct answer requires introspection, requires us to ask ourselves, how can we change? Because change is very difficult. And you couple that with the fact that the media is in competition with each other to carve out as much mind share and attention and time as you can give them. So when the traditional media beats up on social media, they are in direct competition, right? The mm, New York Times yeah. is in the same yeah. exact business model as Facebook. They sell your time and attention to advertisers. Does anybody not know that? They're competing against each other. <laughs> so of course, right. the New York Times wants to tell you how terrible Facebook is. The New York Times is also owned by a very, you know, is almost wholly owned by a, a small family enterprise. Fox News is owned by the Murdochs. They are all in competition with each other. So of course, they're going to rag on new media because they're stealing market share. That doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. Well said. Nir, I've been following you for a while since after, shortly after Hook came out and, and different things. How would you describe what you do? Are you an author? Are you a behavioral scientist? Are you a behavioral designer? Where would you put your yourself in the overarching kind of component? And, and I'm wondering if this is going to be a coffee and tea thing combined, here, but <laughs> we'll see. I, I, no, you, you nailed it. I'm, I'm a behavioral designer. So I uh, help companies build the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. And my work uh, has been used in every conceivable industry from healthcare to financial services to ed tech products, anywhere where we need to create a habit in the user's life for good. So there's many industries I will not work with and have never worked with, alcohol, tobacco, gambling, uh, porn. There's many industries I won't work with. But there are many industries that I wish would work with me more, <laughs> right? where mm. we can really improve people's lives by changing their habits for good. Was this something that came from, was there sort of an early inspiration? Like you come out of Stanford and it's like, this is where I want to go. Boom, this is it. You know, eye on the bead, just go for it. I mean, tracking your career looks like there might've been some, <laughs> you know, some wavy uh, roads that you took to get to this point. But, but yeah. how did you see yourself coming out of Stanford, you know, for instance? I think it actually goes back even further than that. So I used to be clinically oh. obese starting from childhood. Uh, so I was a, I was born in the 70s, but I remember the 80s. And the behaviors that we used to do in the 80s, like the food we used to eat, <laughs> today looks crazy what our parents fed us, right? The Cocoa Puffs for breakfast and the Twinkies for lunch and the soda for dessert. All the, you know, there's just 
such bad eating habits. And I remember when I was struggling with my weight uh, and, I, and I went, you know, I had the whole nine yards. My, my parents took me to fat camp. I remember I went to the doctor's office and he had this chart in his wall and he said, hey, look, for your age, this is normal weight. This is overweight. And here you are, you're in this red zone, you're obese. And I remember the, the feeling of being out of control, that food controlled me. And that experience of understanding the effect that that had on me, as well as eventually overcoming it, right? Realizing that, yeah, let's, let's come clean. Let the, the food company's business is to make delicious food. Okay, would we want it any other way? <laughs> Do we want them to make yeah. gross food? Yeah. No, we want them to make delicious <laughs> food. That's their job. And so it wasn't until I educated myself, I remember I got this little book called The Tea Factor, which was this little, this was before the internet, that told me you know, what's in your food. And for the first time I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I can eat four oranges for every cup of orange juice. And you know, this, when I really started educating myself on how to lose weight, and I did slowly but surely, I, I was able to lose weight. And I think that really shaped my uh, worldview, I think in the ability for not only products to persuade us, I remember learning about all the marketing techniques that companies use to, to persuade really you know, children as, as well as adults and being fascinated by how you could change behavior that way. So I think that's part of my interest. But and then there's this other aspect from my ethnic background. So I was born in Israel, as I mentioned, my family were Holocaust survivors. And I think there's, it's not a coincidence that many of the people who've been on your show, <laughs> many behavioral scientists out there, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely, there, there's a lot of Israelis in this industry, a lot of Jews in this industry. Lots. Yeah. 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 And I think there's some kind of fascination that we have with mass persuasion, probably because we have this trauma of the Holocaust, uh, remembering that very acutely in our families, of how dangerous it can be when people are coerced and how we, we use behavioral design tactics for good as opposed to ill. So I think that's probably the cocktail of influence that, uh, that led me to take interest in this. And then very directly where, how I got into this is that I started a company in business school in the gaming and advertising industry. And this was you know, the intersection of two industries that are, are really experts at changing behavior. And many of these folks were my clients and friends. I, you know, I, I met many people in the industry and I was in Silicon Valley from 2006 to 2017. So right as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google and uh, all these companies were really hitting their stride. And, and my idea was, well, how do you do this, right? How, how, what are their secrets? And what if we could steal their secrets for good? So it's not just social media and video games that use the psychology of behavioral design to build products, but what if we could use that for all kinds of, of applications? And I you know, looked for a book on how do you build habit-forming products and I couldn't find one. So I started to research this topic and I spoke with many people who were at these companies. I spoke with many people who were uh, you know, academics in the field to, to try and translate the academic literature into product design. And it was really kind of a, a, a niche. Back then I was kind of convincing people that you know, Zuckerberg didn't just get lucky, <laughs> that he actually mm -hmm. right. knows this stuff. Not, not many people know. I mean, everybody knows that Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard, but they don't know that along with his computer science major, his other major was psychology. Uh, Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, was a symbolic systems major, which is the intersection at Stanford of computer science and psychology. So these folks know what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you know yourself. And so yeah. it behooves us, especially in the product design community, to leverage these techniques, right? Not, not for ill, not to get people to waste their time, but to help people improve their lives. And so that's what I wanted to do with my first book. Okay. Just learn, though, that like Cocoa Puffs and Twinkies aren't supposedly a good meal because that's what I'm still eating. No I, I grew up here. <laughs> Live your best life. So I'm just not making sure I got that. All right. I, I need to make note and learn a little bit more about that. But 
one of the things, actually, in all seriousness, one of the things that we've talked a lot on the show, Tim and I have a big fascination with this, and I think you do too, is this idea of, you know, behavioral science being applied in ethical manner. And and you talk about this partly both in Hooked, but also in, in, in other ways, other places that you've you've talked about those things, because there is this opportunity that behavioral science could be used, as you said, to persuade for things that are ill-begotten. As you said, you, you choose not to do certain industries, but you know, other people may not have those types of restrictions on how they use the stuff or even the way that they use it. So what are your thoughts on the state of the industry and ethics at this point? Are we doing a good enough job as as behavioral scientists, behavioral designers? Is there more to do? Where where do you see it going? Yeah, so there's I think there's three levels to answer this question around ethics. There's the individual level, there is the corporate level, and then there's the societal level. And so we can try and do all those. It, it might take a little while, but I, <laughs> I have a lens, I have a viewpoint on all three of those levels because there's different solutions at oh. that level, right? So the individual level, you as a behavioral designer need to look in the mirror and feel good about this limited time you have on earth that you're spending your your life and your career in a way you're proud of. And so one framework that I offer in Hooked, you know, of course, I've always thought about ethics. Of course, it's been top of mind. So in the very first edition of Hooked, it's still in you know every copy that's published, is this section called the morality of manipulation. And yep. in that chapter, I give what, uh, what I call the manipulation matrix. And the idea is that there's a two-part test that you can ask yourself. So this is the individual level. So you looking in the mirror, you have to answer in the affirmative to two questions. The first question is, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Okay, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives. And so this isn't a way for you to judge other people or, or other people to judge you. It's a way for you to look in the mirror and ask yourself, is this true? Okay, that's number one. But that's not good enough. There's another question I want you to answer, which is I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do either of you know what the first rule of drug dealing is? Sorry, I, I think I, I, I uh, was distracted on, when guys. I was taking that lesson in, <laughs> in my uh, high school class. I'll tell you, it's okay. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing that you don't know. The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. Ah, and I want you to break that rule as a behavioral designer. <laughs> I want you to get high on your own supply. So the second question you have to ask and answer in the affirmative is, am I the user? So not only do I believe this is materially improving people's lives, but I am the user. If you can answer in the affirmative to both those questions, you're in a very good ethical position. Why? Because if there are deleterious effects to whatever it is you're working on and you are the user, you're the guinea pig. You're gonna know about it, okay? And not only is that a good ethical place to be, it's also a very good place to be from a business perspective because the hardest thing about building products for people is knowing what they want. Right, People will say they want something, but will they actually do it? Will they use the product the way you've designed for them to, to use the product? So being the user, you really can't fail because you're building something for yourself. And if you build it and you find it useful, hey, you've succeeded even if your company didn't go public because you made something that you wanted to see in the world that you use. So that's a good ethical test on an individual level, okay? But what about on the corporate level? So here, we have to ask ourselves these, th this ethical question around how do we know we, we can use these tactics, uh, these, these uh, behavioral design tactics for good. And so for a long time, I was searching for what's the ethical test because the best that we had was what Google said, right? Google said, don't be evil. That used to be the Google motto. It no longer is, by the way, right. the official motto. <laughs> but the motto used to be, don't be evil. 
But that's not a very good ethical bar because evil is subjective, right? What one person thinks is evil, right. somebody else thinks is fine. So that's not a very good ethical test. So then the lawyers say, okay, the lawyers say, well, just disclose, just tell the user everything they need to know, right? But then that doesn't really work because what do we get? We get these mile-long terms of service uh, contracts that nobody reads. In fact, I don't know if you saw this in the news a few weeks ago, there was a gaming company that had in their terms of service, you agree to give us your immortal soul for all time and eternity. And they just played it as a prank <laughs> just to see if anybody read the terms of service. And of course, you know, nobody did. It's, uh, you know, no one out of a million no. ever does. Uh, so that's not a very good ethical bar. Just telling people disclosing, that's not really ethical. So then I, I heard, well, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's also not good enough. Why? Because why are we as the designers, the arbiter of what other people want? Who says we know what they want? It has to be even a higher bar than that. And the bar should be do unto others as they want done to them. That should be the bar. Well, how do we do that? The way we do that is by knowing the difference between the two types of manipulation. Okay, manipulation sounds like a bad thing. It's not, the word itself is not necessarily pejorative. It doesn't have any negative connotation per se, because manipulation can be split into two types of manipulation. We have mm -hmm. persuasion, which is helping people do things that they themselves want to do. That's persuasion. I think that's perfectly ethical. If, if I want to exercise more, but for lack of good product design, I don't. If I want to learn a language, but there's no good way to do it, it's too difficult. If your product can help me do that, that's great, right? That's persuading me to do something I myself want to do, but find too difficult to do today. That's a very ethical use of persuasive design and behavioral design. The unethical form of manipulation is coercion, which unlike persuasion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Now, how do we know the difference? The difference is one word, and that one word is regret. That if a user regrets using your product, that's a good indication that you have coerced them into a behavior that they did not want to do. And so that's why I've established what I call the regret test. So the regret test replaces all those bad ethical tests like don't be evil and you know the, the, the golden rule, all those other things. Here's what you do. When there's a question in the boardroom about, hey, is this design pattern that we've, uh, we've created, is this idea, is this behavioral design technique, is this ethical? and somebody proposes something that might seem a little fishy, we do what's called a regret test. A regret test uses this time-honored tradition where we bring people into, the, into our offices and we do usability testing. Usability testing has been around forever. It's been around for decades. What is usability testing? You show people the interaction, right? You show them the user flow of what they would do with your product and you're asking them, would they do what you have designed for them to do knowing everything that you as the designer know? And then asking them whether they regret what they just did. Now, that sounds like a lot of work. The beauty of the regret test is that when people understand what the regret test is, it has a chilling effect. So if you're in a boardroom where somebody proposes what we call a dark pattern, you raise your hand and say, you know what? Before we put this out into the wild, and potentially people complain about this or this gets into the news or we lose customers because they tell all their friends that this might be a potentially shady tactic, just to make sure this is okay, let's do a regret test. And 99 times out of 100, people say, oh, you know what? Maybe that's not such a great idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but thinking in the head of the user, asking themselves, well, would they regret doing this? right? That's a wonderful test for us to make sure that we use these tactics for good. It's interesting. We talked with Dan Pink about his book, Regret. And so when you bring this up, it kind of instantly kind of brought that back to my head. And one of the things that he talked about in there, though, is that oftentimes 
regret is something that comes with time that you don't realize it in the moment. And I think that is a, an interesting thing about this. When I was, uh, you know, I, I have these, I eat the Twinkie, you know, every day. I don't regret it in the moment of eating the Twinkie. I only regret it 20 years later when I am, you know, can't walk around and have heart problems and various different pieces of it. And so I look back on the actions that I did. So how do you take that into account if you're creating something as that may not have that instantaneous aspect of regret? How do you build that in? Because we know that's a that's a key piece, right? Yeah, it's a great point, Kurt. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it. You don't do the regret test just once. It's not mm. one and done. It is the canary in the coal mine. It's the indicator that tells you that something is gonna go wrong in the future, right? So take Facebook, for example. Facebook was super cool back when everybody first started using it. And then we started saying, oh, there's some bad aspects to this. And I don't like the way I feel after I use this. And uh, look, I don't like how much time I'm spending on it. And there's all these ads and political mumbo jumbo. And now it's a full on dumpster fire. Mm. So if you as a company don't constantly pulse check to see, hey, are people, do people regret using this product? Not just when they first started using it, but 30 days later, 60 days later, 180 days later, two years later, if at any point they start regretting it, you got a problem, right? And so you have to constantly uh, pulse check to make sure that people don't regret using this product from, from various demographics. You know, we know that in uh, Facebook, for example, young people don't use Facebook anymore, right? You would be really hard pressed to find anybody under 21 who actually uses Facebook, you know, blue. Not, not, I know Facebook owns WhatsApp and they own Instagram, but Facebook blue, the, 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 the flagship, Almost nobody that age uses it. That is a big problem. Why do you think they're diversifying into the metaverse and investing more in WhatsApp and Instagram? Because that's a better version of a social network, right? Because it doesn't come with all the, gar Instagram doesn't come with all the garbage that you find on, on uh, Facebook. So the company knows that. And so it's part of uh, using the regret test is not using it just once, it's actually continuing to use it to make sure that you're ahead of customers' opinions about your product. I love that, but I'm also a little concerned that, you know, Facebook has built this entire mega company. And so now that they're doing the regret test, it's like, we have to tear down our company and we know what that, you know, the financial incentives, as you talked about, you talked about variable rewards and various different aspects. We know the incentives are not necessarily lined up there. So I think it's a it's a tough thing for companies to do when they've their entire existence is based upon something that has now become, oh, maybe there's some unintended consequences from what we put out there that we weren't anticipating. And now how do we overcome that? And it's, it's not an easy question. Well, it is and it isn't, right? There's, a, there's okay. a thing, if you don't eat your lunch, somebody else will. And so what's happening to Facebook right now, right? Facebook has tremendous competition from uh, TikTok and Snapchat, yep. right? Because they're asleep behind the wheel, right? They're not innovating their product. As much as we say, oh my God, Facebook's so addictive. The social dilemma tells us we can't stop. Of course we can stop because we go to something better, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, Insta right. You know, Instagram, they bought. Uh, that was the deal of the century, right? They got it for $1 billion. A company, if you separated it, would be, you know, something I, 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 a few years ago it was worth 39 billion and I'm sure it's even much more than that today. Yeah. Uh, that's one way they, they're trying to innovate away from some of the bad aspects on Facebook. We know that that is the next generation of social media. And they know that people are, are leaving, right? People aren't leaving Facebook. The young people are leaving Facebook right now for Snapchat, for TikTok. That becomes the next version because it doesn't give you that same um, negative aspects. Uh, so if you don't innovate, uh, your competition certainly will. Hmm. I love that. Actually, it's such an obvious point. As you say it, I instantly had that moment of, well, of course. 
And yet it doesn't seem to be such an obvious thing in our discussions about, well, how to make Facebook less valuable, do something better. Actually, just create better products, create better environments, create better social media, um, and and ultimately we'll be attracted to those, right? You know, it's very much like what we saw in the car industry, that uh, seatbelts appeared in cars 17 years before any legislation mandated it. Why? Right. Well, because people like safer cars, <laughs> right? Today, on every single person's iPhone, mm. unless you haven't updated the iOS in a long time, on your iPhone, on your Android phone, it comes with Google Wellbeing and Apple Screen Time, which intentionally help you limit how much you use a product. Can you name any other product that the manufacturer helps the user use less? No, I, it's very hard to think of any examples. <laughs> Why do they do that? Are, are they doing it because of uh, legislative pressure? No, there's no law that says that. Are they doing it altru altruistically because they really care about the users? No, it's because people like devices that help them use them in moderation. These companies don't want to burn you out. They don't want to addict you. They want you to use their products for the rest of your life in a way that serves you. Because if it doesn't serve you, if you hate the product, just like we saw a few years ago, everybody was up in arms, oh, I'm using social media too much. Guess what people do? They burn out. They stop using the product or they use a different product that doesn't burn them out. So it behooves these companies, and that's why you see these companies adding these features to their phones. It's not because they're, they're nice. It's not because the government's making them because it's what their customers want. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to switch over to something that, talking about your, your history, going back to a child, your own childhood as being clinically obese, you've had a relationship with self-compassion, dates back a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, so the relationship with uh, self-compassion is super interesting that uh, we know that people who offer themselves self-compassion are much more likely to reach their long-term goals as opposed to people who beat themselves up when they make a mistake, right? So when it comes to distraction, we tend to see people falling into one of two categories. We call them the blamers or the shamers. The blamers, they blame things outside themselves, right? It's mm. my phone, it's the fast food industry, it's my boss, it's social media, it's stuff outside me. This is kind of a futile argument because we know that people have been getting distracted for at least the past 2,500 years. Why do I say 2,500 years? Because that is the first recorded instance of someone bemoaning distraction. Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years before the internet, said the world is so distracting these days, right? So <laughs> it, it can't be our technology that's the, the root cause of the problem. That's just a proximal cause. The root cause of the problem goes much deeper. It's, it's in our heads. It's in how we behave. It's in the norms and manners that we have in our day-to-day -day lives. So being a blamer, doesn't doesn't help because you can't go into a time machine before these things existed. And even if you could, you'd still find distraction in one form or another. The other extreme is the shamer. The shamer, they don't blame things outside themselves. They shame themselves. They say, oh, I'm no good at time management or I'm not a morning person or I'm a Sagittarius. So therefore, <laughs> for whatever I can see reason, being, being really shamed at being a Sagittarius. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, I think they yeah, should. Yeah. They should feel that way. There, actually, there's yeah. something wrong with me in some way. And the vast majority of people, 97% of the people out there, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't have any kind of you know diagnosis here. It's just that you haven't learned these techniques. So blaming doesn't work. Shaming doesn't work. What does work is claiming. So as opposed to a blamer or a shamer, a claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel, but for how they respond to how they feel. So what a lot of folks don't realize is that we actually do not control our urges. You don't control your urges and emotion. You don't control them. 
What you control is how you will respond to those urges and emotions. So uh, think about it when you have the urge to sneeze. If you have the urge to sneeze, you already have felt that urge, right? You can't stop that urge, you already felt it. What you can do is choose how you will respond to that urge. Are you gonna sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? Or are you gonna take out a tissue and cover your face because that's the responsible thing to do. So responsibility is about how you respond to that sensation. So the same goes when it comes to the craving to eat, the craving to check uh, your social media, the craving to get distracted from whatever it is that you said you're gonna do with your time and attention. It's really not about blaming and shaming, it's about claiming what you will do in advance, right? I I think if you summarize my five years of research, the summary of the book is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. There is no technology, there is no temptation that I've ever seen that is more powerful than we are if we plan ahead. So if you leave it to the last minute, right? If the chocolate cake is on the fork and you're on a diet and it's already on the fork, you're gonna eat it, it's too late. If the cigarette (laughs) is in your hand, you're gonna smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, it's gonna be the first thing you reach reach for in the morning, right? It's too late. But if you plan ahead, and this is what indistractable people do, they plan today to make sure they don't get distracted tomorrow. Yeah, That is fantastic. Tell us a little bit more about your personal journey. Where does self-compassion, you know, we talk about me-search, right? Mm. And a lot of researchers, George Lowenstein is great about this, about, man, he's constantly self-reflecting on things in his own life. And therefore, his body of work is wide and diverse because it's it ends up having this, this fulcrum of, of his own life experiences at the center of his work. Is there an element in the self-compassion story about, about you and your personal story, your personal experience? Sure, yeah, yeah. So one of the elements of self-compassion, how, how do you do that? Uh, you offer yourself self-compassion by talking to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. So as opposed to blaming and shaming, which actually makes the problem worse, right? Because when you shame yourself, shame is a very powerful internal trigger. Shame is uncomfortable. And so it sends people into the shame spiral, which you know I, I felt in spades. I mean, this, this is why I was obese. Uh, I wasn't obese because McDonald's made a lot of delicious food. I was obese because when I felt lonely, I ate. When I was bored, I ate. When I felt ashamed about how much I had just eaten, I would eat. And that's really the the root cause of the problem. And it's the same with all kinds of distractions in our life. So the way you break that cycle is not by heaping on more and more and more shame and blame, but rather by offering yourself self-compassion, by talking to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. So would a good friend shame and blame? No, a good friend would offer compassion, would say, okay, well, you fell off the wagon this time, it happens. What are we gonna do next time? What, how are we gonna make sure that this becomes less likely to happen again in the future? So offering that self-compassion is a huge step uh, on our journey to becoming indistractable. You, you talk about the language that we use as well and that how important that language is. And you even talked about it here. It's like, I'm not a morning person. I am not this or, or that. How important is language and how, do we, how does language affect both our motivations and our self-identity. So, so, so important. And in fact, there's some wonderful research that I cite in the book around how the language we use uh, really does affect our behavior for better and for worse. And I'll I'll give you two Mm -hmm. examples. So the first example is how it affects us in, in a negative way. So, you know, these days we hear a lot about how we are all supposedly addicted to technology and how it's hijacking our brain and how we're helpless to resist. And I, I argue that's very dangerous. 
And the research that I point to is similar in, in that a few years ago, I'm sure you remember all this research around ego depletion. Ego depletion is this mm-hmm. idea that willpower is a depletable resource. And there was a lot of res- uh, research around this and it made a lot of waves. And then as we do in the social sciences, you know, you've heard this a lot these days that when something smells a little fishy, we replicate the study, we run it again. And so several researchers reran the research around ego depletion, this idea that willpower runs out just like a battery would run out of power. And they found that that's not actually the case, that it's not really true that we run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank, except in one case. Carol Dweck over at Stanford did this study where she found that one group of people do actually experience ego depletion. Everybody else does not. One group of people do. That group of people who experience ego depletion are people who believe that willpower is a limited resource. (laughs) So if you believe you're gonna run out of willpower, you're gonna run out of willpower. And this is why I think it's so dangerous to tell people that technology's hijacking their brain. Come on, hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. It's not Candy Crush for God's sakes, right? We gotta put this in proportion. Dopamine squirts, oh my God, if I hear dopamine squirts one more time, I'm gonna yell. Okay, <laughs> you, know, they say, you see these articles in the in the in the popular press that oh the same areas of your brain light up when you play when you're on social media or you play a video game that we, that light up when you use cocaine. It's ridiculous, completely out of proportion. When you actually talk to the people who did these studies, that's not what they say at all. It's a whole other different order of magnitude. It's ridiculous. So you know it, it's it's just not even relevant. This these type of comparisons. So but when we tell people that this is the case. They believe it, right? So if you believe I'm addicted, there's nothing I can do about it, right? It's hijacking my brain, I'm powerless. Guess what people do? Nothing, which is exactly what the tech companies want. The tech companies (laughs) love the Social Dilemma movie because it told you about how you cannot resist and there's nothing you can do about it and offered no solutions. By the way, I was interviewed for the Social Dilemma for three hours. They interviewed me for three hours. I'm in the credits and nothing I said is in the movie. (laughs) Wow. Why? Why? It's the same as if you go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, you have a terrible disease and you say, oh, that's awful. Do you have the cure? I do have the cure, but I'm not gonna give it to you. That's malpractice, right? And what the social dilemma did was tell people how terrible it was and they didn't tell people, hey, there's a few solutions here, right? How about make a calendar, plan time to use social media, turn off your stupid notification settings. How about that, (laughs) right? Didn't talk about any of that stuff, right? Very simple things that we can do. And and it goes deeper than than just notification settings as we talked about these internal triggers. But these kind of things are why it's so important to not identify ourselves, to not put labels on ourselves as someone who is an addict or someone who, uh, you know, uh, I hear a lot ADHD. People talk around, oh, I have ADHD. Now, if you actually do have that pathology, different story. If you've gone to a clinician, you have the diagnosis, great. Now you can get proper help for that. But the amount of people who say, I'm OCD or I have ADHD and they don't have any kind of diagnosis, that is not serving you to put a label on yourself like that. We converse this. That's how these labels can be very dangerous. On the flip side, we can use labels for good that we know from the psychology of religion that when people use a particular moniker for themselves, it can actually help them become more likely to reach their long-term goals. How? When a devout Muslim doesn't say, oh, I wonder if I should have uh, a gin and tonic. No, a devout Muslim does not drink alcohol. Uh, A vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich. No, a vegetarian does not eat meat. It is who they are. 
So we can use a moniker for ourselves to become the kind of people we want to become, which is why my book is titled Indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. So that's back to that superpower mm, idea. Right, right. So by calling yourself indestructible, <laughs> that becomes your moniker. And, and, and the good news is we've been here before with something far more addictive than our technology. So I remember in the 1980s, you guys are, I guess, about my age as well. You'll remember this. Back then, everybody had an ashtray in their living room. Do you remember this? When we grew up, mm-hmm. every oh, household yes. had an ashtray. Why? Because people back then, when they walked into your house, they just expected to be able to light up a cigarette and smoke in your living room. Everybody did this back then. It wasn't strange. Today, it sounds crazy. Can you imagine if someone walked into your living room and just lit up a cigarette without asking? That would be incredibly <laughs> rude. What, what, what changed? Was there a law that said you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No, there's never been such a law. What changed was, People like my mother, I remember this actually, we had an ashtray in our living room. One day she threw them away and one of her friends came over and took out a pack of cigarettes and was about to light up. And she said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, I'm sorry. We are non-smokers. You see, there's that moniker. We are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, if you'd kindly go outside. <gasps> this lady was so offended that she was asked to go outside to smoke a cigarette. And of course now it's commonplace. So what we need is everybody listening to the sound of my voice to proudly declare yourself as indistractable. You're the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with others. You're the kind of person that does some weird things, right? Just as uh, somebody who wears unusual religious garb or someone who has unusual diet. Yeah, I do some things that are different. You know what? When I go out to lunch with people, I put my phone away and I'd like them to do the same so I can have a conversation and be fully present with them. You know what? I plan my time. Yeah, it sounds a little strange, but that's part of my practice. Is it any different from someone who prays up to uh, in a particular faith? No, it's who you are. It's it's part of your identity. So we can use those identities to help us become the kind of people we want to become. That's fantastic advice, Anir. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's talk about the part of your identity that has to do with music. And so imagine you're living on an island, an island nation right now. But imagine you were at uh, in some small desert island in Indonesia or Malaysia or something relatively close by, but you were there for a year. What two musical artists' catalogs would you take with you? You get to oh. choose two. You get everything that they've they've ever written or recorded. What two artists would you would you take with you? Okay, I'll give you two. I would take the Beatles mm-hmm. because the Beatles. Uh, that one's obvious. That one could be self-explanatory. <laughs> and I'll take I'll take Kanye West. Not because wow. I know Kanye West that well, but because <laughs> I don't know Kanye West so well. And people say he's a genius. And I've never spent the time. He was a little bit after my time. Like I I was already too old to really get into it. But I, I would love to get into it. So I would want something new and something old. So the Beatles are something old that I know very well. I know almost all their songs. And I take Kanye West, so I'd, on that year I could really get into his music. I like the I like the risk taking you have there because you could find that you, Kanye West is like the the worst music in your entire <laughs> life that you and now you are stuck with that for a year and you you only have your Beatles to fall back on. But I, I love it. I love the I love the thought pattern going into that. I do too. I just have to comment on this. We asked this question of many of our guests, and most people. The vast majority of people want to refer back to something that's comfortable and familiar, right? To be rewarded with, I'm going to be listening to the, to music that I've already decided that I love. But in your novelty-seeking self, you've said, well, there's something out there that I might really need to explore more deeply. And Kanye's got a, a magnificently broad catalog, so why not? I think that is fantastic. You've, you've brought 
a whole bunch of new perspectives to me. This one being uh, that. So, so thank you for that. Would you, uh, would you listen to music while you work? So I don't listen to music with words. Uh, but I do listen mm. to music. So I'll listen to classical music. I'll listen to jazz. I have an app on my phone that plays um, like oral beats where it's just uh, kind of background mm-hmm. music, but I, I can't listen to anything. Or, or sometimes I'll listen to music in languages I don't understand. <laughs> so French music. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> but I, I, I can't listen to, to music with words I understand because I find that too distracting. We've talked to people who are, uh, I remember there was one guest who is fluent in multiple languages and she's, she was fluent in English and French and Spanish. And she said, I can listen to music in any language other than those languages. So Because like, uh, knowing what the words mean apparently is a problem, right? Yeah, that's yeah. distracting <laughs> if, if we were to get back to that. Well, Nir Ayal, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Gurus. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Nir, have a free-flowing conversation, and we talk about whatever else comes into our undistractable, indestructible minds. Or super distractible. <laughs> no, that's the opposite. That's I know. the opposite, buddy. Because we are super distractible, aren't we? I'm sorry, what were you saying? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. We are. We are. We are super dis- distractible. Whole bunch of things, and I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna groove on that. But Tim, before we start, yep. What do you want to start, Kurt Lewin? Before he, Kurt Lewin, the guy he wants to have dinner with. Ah, we okay. He, he he raised up his whole level there. Why is Kurt Lewin such a big deal? Not just to you, but in, in the world. Well, there's a lot name, of people that just his yeah. name is Kurt, and all Kurts are awesome, right? Yeah. You know, William James was actually nicknamed Tim. Uh, you probably don't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not Bill. <laughs> no, not, not Bill. Will. No, just, Tim. People just call it. Yeah, that's why I connect with William James. Because <laughs> 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 his nickname was Tim. No, why? Okay, so let's, is, maybe it's good if we're going to jam on Kurt Lewin. Why is he so it's such an important figure in behavioral science? He, he, he was one of the first to to really talk about and put behavior in a whole different context, talking just about a both nature and nurture components of it, but also a force field kind of analysis, this idea that there are outside influences, but inside drivers. And so all of those factors that come into play, if we look at modern day behavioral science, a lot of the stuff that that Kurt was talking about in the 50s, I mean, they're they're what we're, we're exploring and looking at now. That's yeah. that's my thing. It was like really thinking about, you know, his behavior model, all sorts of different things. So, yeah, he he is foundational in a lot of ways. Yeah. He was a brilliant thinker for me. I mean, the fact that he was a, a mentor to Leon Festinger, you know, that's kind of a big deal. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> you know? There's a little known fact for everybody. There you go. I did not even realize that. So there you go. And maybe one of the most important connections two of you had is your alma mater, right? Go Hawkeyes, fight, fight, fight for Iowa. Let every loyal Iowan sing. Anyway, there we go. That's my yeah. bad. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but how how long how long was he in Iowa City? Just a few years. Just a yeah. Year. Okay. Wasn't there and it was before you were even born. It so. was well before I was even. He died well before I was even born. So there you go. Anyway, all right. Let's get back back to the conversation uh, with Nier. What what do we want to what do we want to groove on to? 
the self-compassion thing was just so co- so cool in the light of the schedule time to think as being maybe the most important, maybe the most salient thing for me. It's like, you know, you got to take care of yourself first mm-hmm. and taking time to think, you know, we can get into all kinds of strategies about what to do about that, how to do that. But just the idea, just conceptually to say, let's actually make sure that we have time to think about our lives is so important. And again, uh, all kinds of ways that you can get that done. But that's a foundational idea right there. Yeah. And I think the big thing for me is that we hold a lot of misconceptions about distraction. Like the best way to focus your day is to write a to-do list. And Mm -hmm. Research shows yeah. that that isn't the case. And and yep. Nir brings up, you know, the box calendar kind of piece, that idea of blocking right. off parts of your calendar with specific actions, again, using implementation intentions in order Which to, is much more successful than writing the damn list. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. so this idea yeah. of, of bringing the science into this idea of distraction, this idea, as you said, like scheduling time to think, because, you know, we know from a productivity perspective that particularly when we're thinking strategy or big picture or other things, is that we don't stop. We don't pause our life enough to allow our minds to focus in on something for a period of time and to really get deep into that. That, I think, is really fascinating to me. It connects back to his comments about sort of, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but when he was talking about, oh my gosh, if I don't eat that burger from McDonald's, then, you know, what are they going to do with it? (laughs) Like, you know, it's just like, if we can start to set up constructs in our lives that are just more thoughtful, it gets back to uh, Andy Duke thinking about our decisions. Mm -hmm. And rather than resulting all the time, think about the process that we use to make our decisions. Be intentional. Holy cow. How many times have we said that in the last 300 episodes? To be intentional is such a such an important thing. And I just think that that's all of that sort of sifts together into the into the the flower that makes our behavioral cake, I guess. That's I thought you were going with a different flower and you were going to have bees getting, um, you know, their pollen from that kind of flower. There you go. But, you know, I like the behavioral (laughs) cake. Do you have a a piece? Because I'm kind of hungry right now. Anyway, Uh, Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) What else? So the other piece in this, you know, he he talked about this in his book. And so if, if people haven't read Indistractable or Hooked, Hooked is like, man, when that came out, it just blew my mind away. And it was is really powerful. But um, but he talks about this in Indistractable, this idea that our distractions, we often blame on external triggers, external factors, when in yeah. fact, a lot of our distraction is based on internal triggers, those boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, you know, all of those things. And, and we've been having those distractions for millennia. This isn't this isn't just because social media is out here now that and we have phones in our pockets that we get distracted. The, right. the, the best thing was his whole thing, this idea that the phone, that when we look at the phone, right, we go, oh, I, I look because it, it beeped in my pocket or it, it did the buzz or it <laughs> rang or whatever. No, no, that's 10 percent of the time. Right. 90% right. of the time we look at it because we're standing in line and it's like, oh, I got 
that I got 34 seconds that I'm going to have to wait. Oh, I can't wait that and not do anything. I got to look at something. It, you know, it's like crazy when we think about that. I'm going to the airport this afternoon, and I have to admit that it reminds me of in recent years having to be intentional to not pick up the phone, not pull the phone out of my pocket while I'm standing in the line to get through TSA security. Yeah. You know, there is this natural thought that, okay, I've got 20 seconds. I've got 10 seconds between now and the time I should, I should read an email. I should check the news because my life will be so much more enriched by knowing exactly <laughs> what the news is happening right at this minute before I walk through a, you know, a metal detector. Well, so what? Yeah. And this idea that, I mean, so it's become habit, right? It, it's not, yes. it's not the yes. fact that we are, are, getting distracted because there's an external trigger. It's now become a habit. Line equals pull phone out, you know, um, <laughs> riding on, uh, you know, transit, pull phone out. So it's not that. And social media yeah. definitely has some, some behavioral tricks to keep us engaged and motivated and scrolling and doom trolling and doing all those other factors. But, you know, the start of it isn't necessarily because it's reaching out and saying that it's just we we've natural inclination to avoid boredom to not have to face our stress or anxieties yeah. to overcome a sense of loneliness and all of those are internal factors and if we don't understand what those are within ourselves and don't address those issues it you could get rid of your phone you could get rid of anything else and it you're still going to be distracted so. Still, it's still going to happen. Yeah. Exactly. Could I just say one other one quick thing I wanted to mention about willpower? We have talked about the depletion of willpower in the past. And Roy Baumeister in his episode was pretty explicit about this idea that there is willpower depletion. And in the studies that he did, yeah. I think you've alluded to this in the past. And I just wanted to reiterate that additional research continues to nuance the story mm. and that that depletion is more today. What our psychological understanding of of willpower is that those people who believe that willpower is a depletable resource, they tend to experience that sense of willpower depletion. On the other hand, people who don't see willpower as being a depletable resource they tend to act in a way and they tend to experience life without a sense of willpower depletion. So, you know, I think there's some work by uh, Katerina Berniker and Veronica Job in 2015 that starts to nuance this story a little bit better. So Nir brought it up and and I just wanted to to kind of fill that in. Well, I think Kurt, do you have any additional thoughts on that? I think it's important and it goes into, you know, we've talked about some of Aliyah Crum's work on on expectations, placebos, and various you know, all of those factors. And this whole line of study on expectation and the impact that expectations have on our actual behavior, minds, you know elements that come from afterwards, I think is very interesting in that it is more powerful than I think most of us realize. And that being said, it's not the be all end all of things, but it does have an element within it that the expectation that willpower is a depletable resource makes it so. Yeah. The expectation that willpower is something that we have, that we all have, makes it so. 
And that difference, I think, along a broad range of different pieces is really powerful. And I think we're going to try to explore that in further episodes as we go forward. We have to. It reminds me of an old sales manager line from my early career when when the sales manager said, okay, so you got to learn this. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Isn't that a Henry Ford? I think that I don't was know. I attributed. Don't know. It's one, it probably gets attributed to everybody, right? But on the internet, Bob, you have the Bob little said that. Yeah. Bob, Bob, of course. Yeah. Bob, 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 on Bob the is amazing. <laughs> I love Bob. He has some great sight, you know, things. Yeah. All right. So that's probably a good place to wrap up this episode. What do you think? Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So I have to say it was great having Nir as a guest and definitely he did not disappoint. Agreed again, Kurt. It was really fun having him and I'm really, it was really fun to talk to him from Singapore and, and to have that conversation. Okay. So Groovers, remember to stay focused on what's important and don't get distracted this week when you're going out and finding your groove.